planet thing that goes on this episode. So I'm just sorry, I really hate to do this, but I got two things to say right off the bat. First of all, I'm still sick, I'm sorry. I'm actually recording this yesterday by your reckoning, uh, but I really wanted to get this one done and not be behind on it again. It really felt like that. So hopefully, you know, my, my throat will get, be okay with me. I've been resting it a bit since the Babylon 5 video, so hopefully we're okay on there. Uh, second thing I want to talk about. <clears throat> so, I uploaded my yesterday's Babylon 5 video, right? Right. Uh, it's the episode The Mind War, for those of you looking back without, you know, without the, the present, with historical context. And... It's like, I get a notification. Hey, someone has filed a content claim that's copywriting in your video. And I'm like, okay. Now, I automatically assume it's because of the variance remix of Morrowind music at the end. And I'm like, okay, if I have to stop doing that and do it in total silence, whatever. Just bend me over the barrel, copywrong, because that's how that works, right? But no, that's not what was copyright claimed. What was copyright claimed was me talking for 30 se 39 seconds in the middle of the video. Now I put the headphones on, cranked the volume up, just in the off chance that like there was some music that played on my computer while I was talking, or maybe, you know, and it recorded it, or maybe there like a, a, a f something had happened outside. No, nothing. It's literally just me talking for 39 seconds right in the middle of the video. And they claimed a copyright claim on me talking for 39 seconds in the middle of a video. I wasn't singing. I wasn't doing anything. There's literally 0% chance of interpreting that as me doing anything other than me talking. I'm sorry, but this I literally found out about this like 15 seconds ago. That's, that's an exaggeration. Right before I sit down to record. I had just finished watching the episode. I get everything set up. I switched outfits. I'm ready to go. I've got the light set up. And then I suddenly get that notification of the copyright thing. So this is like, oh my god, are you kidding me? Moving on. I like this episode. It's a good episode. Great episode, actually. Uh, McNeil has a really good uh, dynamic going on. He liked it, too. Uh, McNeil and Tim Russ both list this as among their favorite episodes that they've done. I feel like Tom was a really good matchup for Tuvok, as weird as that sounds, because Tom, despite his rather abrasive and, frankly, chaotic nature, is extremely understanding and more than intelligent enough to recognize that Vulcans, for one thing, actually have emotions, which brings me to my next point. This is probably my favorite Vulcan episode, possibly ever. The only other one that really comes close is Sarek over in TNG. This episode really is Vulcan in a nutshell, but I want to get more into that in a minute. Uh, I also want to say that Tim Russ was great in this one. He uh, added some great things. The mind meld at the end, which I'll talk about later, uh, was his idea. A lot of really good stuff. He really nails it. I've said it before and I've said it again. There are two actors, in my opinion, who really portray Vulcans best across all of everything. Tim Russ and Mark Leonard. And this episode is a great example of why I say that. Now, uh, I want to add a weird shout-out in the middle of this episode to Joseph Ruskin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Because uh, he's a cool guy. He plays the Vulcan Master in this episode. And he was in Gamesters of uh, Triskelion back in the original series. And he was in something in DS9, and he was in something in Enterprise. And, and he was actually in the movies, too. Uh, my point is, that may sound like a weird thing, but he's actually quite unique in that. The only person who's been in more Star Treks than him, you know, more different series than him, is Major Barrett. And Major Barrett's technically cheating because she's usually just a voice in that, so he's actually appeared in more Star Treks than her. It's a weird thing, uh, but I just felt like shouting it out. <clears throat> so like I said, Vulcan episode. I love the insight into Vulcan culture, into Vulcan past, all that fun stuff. It's funny because a lot of this kind of comes from Voyager uh, when you really think about it. Because, uh, and some of this from TNG as well, and of course from the original series, but the idea is Vulcans aren't 
emotionless. This is something, I know I've said this before on my show, so forgive me for repetition, but I mean, I feel it needs to be repeated. Vulcans aren't emotionless. In fact, Vulcans have the opposite problem. They have such powerful emotions that rage through them so strongly and so you know, normally uncontrolled that it causes a great deal of grievances. I mean, imagine an entire race of, of the most hot-blooded human you know, and the whole race has that level of emotional uh, intensity. Think about what that would do to you as a society. I mean, for God's sakes, it's no wonder that Vulcan society was on the verge of self-destruction before they learned this control. I mentioned this, though. There's a great line about, uh, you know, learning to control your emotions rather than letting them control you. Not to deny them. Not to pretend they don't exist. In fact, the, the Vulcan master does a great job, too. The guy played uh, by Joseph Ruskin. His, his lines about, you know, to deny the emotion's existence is illogical. And I agree with that. And I love that. He does a great job of a Vulcan, too, by the way. Um, but I also find this interesting because the, the, the self-control aspect of Vulcans is a societal thing. There's no, I mean, we, we in, in real life and in universe, in Star Trek, people associate Vulcans with the emotionless logic thing, right? And that's, you know, that makes sense. But that is their culture, not their species. This is funny, actually, because the same could actually be said in many ways of the Klingons. Rawr, honor, death, you know, rah. But again, that's cultural, not species-wise. I just find that an interesting distinction. And it also is very logical to bring it up in this way and to, to play with it a little bit, discuss it a little bit. Because as we, <coughs> as we see in this episode, Tuvok, as a child, had emotions and wasn't controlling them and was affected by them. He was even rejecting the logical cold discourse. And I feel like that's a common thing in Vulcan society because it makes sense. When you have an entire culture that says A, or at least leans towards A, you're going to have outliers. You're going to have people who reject that. I mean, it is, it is in fact, in a child's nature to, uh, to disagree, to rebel, basically, to, to do the opposite of what is requested, regardless of what that is. And so the idea that there are multiple Vulcan children, like Tuvok, who reject the, you know, the, the, the logical path to do their own thing is, is very, very, ironically, logical to me. And it also is logical to me that there would be Vulcan masters, like the gentleman in this episode, whose entire purpose is to help them understand and identify those emotions, to reach out to them in such a way that connects with them. Rather than, if, if I could put this bluntly, if this guy, the Jedi master in this episode, or I just said that, didn't I? If the Vulcan master in this episode was a Jedi in the, in the Council, I think we'd have a lot less Jedi going to the dark side. And I know that's a weird parallel, but think about it for a moment. The parallels between the light and dark thing and, and, the emo and the Vulcans are actually quite strong. Emotions aren't evil. Even the Vulcans say this. Emotions are a part of their life, and you acknowledge them, and you respect them, and you keep them under control. The dark side is not evil and is something that you need to keep. You know, it, it's, the, it's the same damn thing. And so the problem that so many of the old Jedi Masters had, especially during the Clone Wars and right after the Mandalorian, or sorry, excuse me, right before the Mandalorian Wars back in the Old Republic era, had, was rather than trying to explain this to the Jedi, rather than trying to make it work, rather than trying to reach out to the young, you know, to the young or their, their inexperienced or their recruits or whatever, and to, to 
to help them understand why these things need to be, why emotions need to be kept under control, why the dark side is dangerous, why emotions are dangerous, why the dark side needs to be kept under control. They're just, this is the law, and therefore you should obey it because it is the law. And that doesn't work for the reasons I've already told you. The natural inclination towards rebellion. So the fact that we have Vulcan... I, I would love the idea that this Vulcan gentleman, the Vulcan master in this episode, is indicative of the standard type of Vulcan who takes up that type of position, that job, if you will, in Vulcan society, helping to guide their youth into the logical path of IDIC, right? And, you know, nourish them, help them to understand. Don't just say, do this. Explain why you're doing it this way. I loved that. It's a great aspect and great dynamic in the episode. It's a shame there are only like three or four scenes of it, but it spoke volumes. And again, I think the Jedi would have worked out a lot better with guys like this as masters than, than Vrook, for God's sakes. But anyways. Um... So, moving on, Tuvok was great in this one. Tim Russ always does a lot of subtle little touches. I've mentioned this before. Uh, the way he interacts with Seven is a good example uh, back, in, back in the day. He does a lot of little touches. Uh, it's, it's funny because Tim Russ himself is actually a very talented director. Uh, not, not as good as, say, LeVar Burton or, uh, or Jonathan Frakes, but he's good. And so you, you could see his inclination towards visual storytelling. He does a lot of little stuff that showcases his ability to communicate non-verbally, basically. And that's perfect in an episode like this, where you're dealing with someone who literally can't speak your language. And he hits all the right points. I'm not going to go over them point by point, but he does. He hits every right point. Tone, body language, pace of movement, posture. You know, he does it all. It's great. Um... There's some really nice showcasing of the fact that time passes in the desert sequences, even before we learn about the time variance distortion, which happens at the 22-minute mark, by the way. Over half, or just a little, uh, it's about halfway through the episode. Uh, you get the impression that, you know, lots, lots, large periods of time has happened, you know, months. Uh, it turns out to be like four months, I believe, is what they end up saying, has passed as, as they've been here. And uh, I like how they do a lot of things to showcase that, the, the difference in, in the way they act, the set is turned around, just little details here and here, a little more dust is added, you know, nice stuff there. I do have one nitpick that I have to complain about because it bothered me each time I, 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 it, it, would, it would cut forward. Nobody's hair grows. We know for a fact Tom can grow a beard, and we know for a fact that Tuvok can grow a beard, since we've, it's been de demonstrated before. And that neither of them have any facial hair or hair growth problems at all over four months. That's it. It's a, it's a nitpick. That's all I've got. <laughs> Other than that one little thing, they do a really good job of showcasing this. And, of course, that can be explained. I mean, they did have quite a few tools uh, from the shuttle on their ship, and a hygienic kit would be, like, this big and therefore uh, not that out of bounds to be on there, especially since they did have medical kits and whatnot, and keeping someone uh, groomed could be helped towards hygienic. I don't know, whatever. It could be explained away. That just bothered me. I do like... Uh, I do like the fact that Nos warms to Tuvok, not Tom. Now, later on that makes sense, because Tom goes out of his way... Well, I shouldn't say that. They actually showcase a scene where Tom explains how much he cares about and feels for Torres. Nice touch, by the way. Once again, uh, using the Torres-Tom relationship in a good way. It's not, you know... Oh my god, they're together! But it's part of their characters. It's part of Tom's character. It's part of Bolana's character. That'll be discussed later, too. Uh, which I'll go and discuss now. You know, the fact that Tom is like, Oh my god, you know, I, I never thought I'd see her again for four months. And for her, it's been a couple of days. And she didn't really miss me all that much. And he, he doesn't say it, but he's hurt by that fact. And then Tuvok goes out of his way to comfort Tom, which is very Tuvok, by the way. 
and mentions if it had been different, you know, if, if, if she had been four months and you'd been two days, I guarantee you she would have missed you too. And I like that because, again, it informs both of the characters and it's a nice way to tie into the, I guess the subplot is the best way to put it, of this episode, a.k.a. Nos and Tuvok. It's a way for Nos to understand a little bit better how the other side you know, the, the Federation people basically view romance, since we don't really have any insight at all into how her and her people view romance, since we don't really get any insight into her people. I don't think we even get a species name uh, for her people, actually. I'm not sure about that. Anyways, um, but yeah, so Nas, uh, so Nas, uh, Tom showcases his caring, so Nas would obviously know based on that, that, that Tom is off limits, but even before that, Nas takes a shining to Tuvok. Now again, this may... <coughs> Makes sense to me for three reasons. First of all, let's just be clear, romantic attachment is admittedly a logical progression for certain circumstances. For example, hasn't interacted with anyone who isn't hostile in God knows how long. I think someone did the math, but it's a while. Um, encounters someone who not only is, is kind and generous and helpful, but actively saves them and works in, in close personal, you know, works with them on a regular basis, closely and personally, day after day after day. One way or another, a relationship is going to develop there. Might not be romantic. Some people, I, I've said this before, relationship does not mean romantic. There are friendly relationships, there's professional relationships, there's familial relationships, there's romantic relationships. Uh, I think that really covers the gamut. You know, there's other fine shadings there. But the point being, some kind of connection, interpersonal connection, is going to grow in that circumstance regardless. There's no avoiding that. But it still makes sense to me that it would grow into a romantic connection because it's Tuvok. Forgive me, but Tuvok's actually quite a catch. He is dependable, strong, uh, reliable. Uh, he is actually incredibly considerate of other people, and he shows this many times. I actually mentioned that just a bit ago. Uh, he's smart. He looks good. <laughs> I mean, Tim Russ is not exactly a bad-looking man. And while he isn't compassionate, I, I, I should say he is compassionate, he has this weird thing where while he doesn't really showcase most of these things, you know they're there because he does bother to do them on a semi-regular basis. He does act compassionately, even if he doesn't portray himself compassionately. That may not make sense, but what I mean by that is someone who is compassionate will sometimes go out of the way to use comforting tones and try to... I can't do it right now because of my throat, but you know, you get my tone, posture, etc. Tuvok won't do any of that, but he will take the action of trying to set your mind at ease or help you. You remember that episode uh, that was terrible? Uh, Once Upon a Time the name of the episode. One of my favorite parts of that whole episode was the scene where uh, Tuvok comforts Ensign uh, Wildman over the situation. He does it, you know, he does it in, in that sort of robot-like Vulcan nature, but the fact that he bothers to comfort her at all, the fact that he puts the, the effort into the action, that speaks volumes to anyone who's paying attention. By the way, fun fact, Tom was on that shuttle too. So this isn't exactly the first time Tom's been aware of the fact that Tuvok has a compassionate side to him. <sighs> now, as I mentioned here, 22-minute mark. That's when Voyager shows up when we find out about the time discrepancy. I like how they do it, by the way. They could have just said, you know, ah, we are Voyager, and, and we have discovered there's a time discrepancy. But they don't do that. They do that later. 
They have the characters find out about the time discrepancy later in a way that makes sense. We find out about it immediately, which is good writing. Because uh, some people have to remember, you know, in-character knowledge and out-of-character knowledge, even in, in writing, is actually a big, is a big distinction. So we, the audience, understand immediately something, and, and they, the characters shouldn't necessarily understand it immediately as well. I'm probably not making too much sense. But my point is the fact that we see, they do it great. There's Voyager. It's been two hours since we've lost the shuttle. Bam! That information right there is all we need to know, that there's a time discrepancy. Because we have had the visual indicators and everything I mentioned earlier about, you know, the camaraderie and the time passing and all that on the planet. We know it's been longer than two hours for them. It's probably been longer than two days. In fact, it's probably been a huge amount of time. I can do the math, but I don't feel like it off the top of my head. It's been a while. And I like that so that we, again, they don't spell it out. So we automatically can just pick up, oh, okay. You know, it's just, it clicks in your mind. And then later on, the character's like, oh my god, there's the discrepancy. And then when, and they have to find out about that because they have to solve that issue. They have to work around that issue. But I like how they approach that. Now, then we have the uh, the bad guy aliens. Now, this is a weird situation. I am simultaneously for and against this. On the one hand, it's kind of... Um, cheap writing to have there just suddenly be bad guy aliens on both sides actually uh the aliens on the ground who are trying to attack the force field and the aliens attacking the uh the portal up top and it's kind of cheap to do that to add tension but i will say there was a lot of genuine tension in both moments which i'll talk a little bit more about later but i think i i want to i am both for and against the aliens in this case because on the one hand what they're saying actually makes a lot of sense this sinkhole has claimed the lives of, I forget how many, he, he lists a lot of ships. A lot of people have been lost to this thing. This is a clearly dangerous interstellar phenomenon. It needs to go away. People are, as far as they're aware, dying to deal with this. Literally, dying, or not dying to do it, well, I said that wrong. Dying while they're not dealing with this. And so getting this thing dealt with and settled, that, that makes perfect sense. And then there's the fact that he refuses to delay that, <coughs> the closing operation so that they can mount a rescue operation. That I'm not okay with, because that's just him being a dick. And that's why I say, you know, bad guy aliens, because they're obviously portrayed that way. So it's like in the first time, like, oh, okay, I'm with this. And then he pulls that, and it's like, oh. And then later on, they start early. And it's like, ugh, really? You were so close to not being bad guy aliens. Um, so time discrepancy. I'm just going to say this. Time discrepancy is terrifying. It's one of the most horrifying thoughts to me. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like to live an hour and then walk outside and it's been a couple years and your family and friends have no idea what happened to you over the last year? And that's not even a big discrepancy. An hour to a year. I mean, that is kind of big, so I guess that's not a big... But my point is, think about that for a moment. Think about what it would be like to go without any contact with someone. If someone in your life, who you care about, just vanished for a year. And then a year later, they show up, and it's it's like it's been a nothing for them. Now imagine that that's a situation where you're trying to interact with them. I mean, it's so... It, it, they never say it outright. Actually, I guess that's a lie. They do. Tom says it once. Tom says how Voyager is 3,000 light years closer to home. And that's, of course they are. Because for him, it's been four months. Voyager's not going to hang around for four months. It is a miracle that they kept that beacon up all this time so they could get the message four months later that a rescue was coming. Two days later, by their reckoning. 
that is damned miraculous. And it, it's it's part of why I, I feel the tension at the end is a genuine, at least for me. It's because of the time discrepancy, because there is no margin for error there. Any mistake on the Voyager crew is hugely costly for the people below, and vice versa. If they hadn't been there at the proper time... It, that opportunity's never coming again, most likely. Even just even ignoring the threat from the aliens and the bad, the bad guy aliens and the other bad guy aliens, the idea that they would get another chance is unlikely at best. <laughs> and it would take forever to set up again. Can you imagine, oh, we failed to get you up. We'll get you out in another few days. Maybe. Yeah, you, you get my point. Um, but that also brings me to an interesting thought. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't it have been a slow transport? We know for a fact that you're at least partially aware in transport, thanks to uh, Reginald Barkley and TNG. And given the time discrepancy, shouldn't... Like, like it was only a few seconds, but that's still... Um, ah, maybe I can do the math in my head. I can't. I'm, I'm way too out of it. That's still a while. So wouldn't that be like a several minutes long teleport for them? And I could just picture them like, okay, everyone stay absolutely still as the transporter beam slowly figures out what to do with us and beams us out. Now... In defense, there's actually a way to uh, explain that. Uh, but that, that way doesn't make sense, so I'm not even going to go into it. The idea that they're teleporting to the relay and then out, as opposed, but you know, the relay doesn't have transporters on it, so it doesn't make sense. Um, so yeah, I like the idea that everyone stay perfectly still for the next several minutes while the transporter beam is taking, taking action. It's like, okay, it's a little bit longer. Anyways, um, which is even more horrifying because the, you know there's people rushing in to attack them while that's happening. Uh, I love the, the note, as I already mentioned, Tom mentioning how hurt he was uh, about the Bologna situation and Tuvok uh, comforting him. I liked that. And I like how after, you know, they get to the room, Tom uh, is just like, uh, Tom says thank you to, uh, to to Nos, and then basically gets Neelix and the crewman and says, let's get out of here, deliberately going out of his way to give Tuvok room. I like that. And it again shows Tom's compassionate nature and wanting to give them the privacy so they could do whatever in their own private way and Tuvok would not have to feel ashamed. In fact, I have, this is kind of a callback to earlier in the episode, but Tom demonstrated that kind of perspective earlier as well. He didn't say it outright. There's a lot of that in this episode, not saying it outright. But he's, you know, he's, he's like, Tuvok, you know, what happened? Tell me, tell me about your past. And Tuvok's like, no. And Tom's response is, it's just you, me, and the rocks. Now, I like that, because there's two things said in that immediately. One, Tom understands Vulcan pride. Vulcan pride is actually very powerful. And the idea of a Vulcan being willing to suffer severe grievous harm, emotionally, politically, culturally, societally, or physically, to withstand, you know, to, to not have to accept or, or admit their failings or flaws or whatever, is a very common thing, and we've seen it many times before now. So he understands that Tuvok does not want to admit the truth of his past for his Vulcan pride, and Tom's like, look, it's just us. There's no one to put up a front for here. Which brings me to point two. He doesn't say it outright. I'm going to stop saying that, I swear. But he implies that he's not going to share that story with anyone, and I, I get the feeling he never did. It's just you, me, and the rocks. And I'm not going to tell anyone whatever you tell me, because it's your private history, your private nature. I like that. And then there's the mind meld, which is perfect. Again, Tim Russ's idea. See, some people tend to forget this. I've noticed in certain aspects of Star Trek, only certain, uh, mind melds are treated as uh, 
gimmicks, almost tools, you know, ah, oh, we'll just mind meld. But a mind meld, and Spock himself has said this, and this has been said elsewise as well, is a very deep personal thing. And that makes sense when you think about it. It's something you do if you really have to, you know, in an emergency situation, or you do it with someone who you are very deeply and personally connected to. It is a joining of the minds, after all. It would be one of the most interpersonal, intimate things you could ever do with anyone, if you think about it the right way. Um, I'm reminded of the idea of the telepaths uh, who become romantically connected thing in Babylon 5, which was discussed last uh, week in Mind War. You know, it's, it's a similar concept. I, I don't necessarily mean the romantic connection here, by the way. Let me make that clear. I mean, the idea of Spock mind-melding with Kirk, for example... Don't don't you ship. <laughs> you know what I mean. Because there's such close friendship and strength between the two that he could accept that, that there could be that sharing of the minds, right? So the fact that he does it with her at all is indicative for me. Then there's the fact that it's a perfect way to immediately and in total context explain how he feels regarding her. Because he could sit there and explain it with words, but that would take forever, and there's so much nuance and there's so much subtlety. Words are actually kind of bad at conveying information, believe it or not. But if you can mind meld with someone, they understand all of it immediately and in perfect context. No misinformation, no misunderstanding. And I liked that. It was really good. One last thing I do want to say before I cut off today's episode. IDIC is the Vulcan philosophy. It stands for Infant Diversity in Infinite... Uh, complexity, I think. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting to me because it's actually an apt descriptor for life, I think. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations, is that right? I think that is right. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations, that sounds better. Um, it's an apt description for life in general and everything that is everywhere. You know, the more you understand and know about how everything works, the more it's just like, oh my god, I can't believe anything works at all, given the sheer number of variables involved. It's monumental. In fact, it is, dare I say, infinite. And I like that. Anyways, that's it. Good episode. I like this episode. Next week's episode, if memory serves, is way more horrifying. We'll be talking about bliss. See you around, guys.